Welcome to the Engineering Voices Podcast, the podcast by and about engineers and their profession. Here we explore how engineers invent, innovate, and inspire with contributions on design, innovation, engineering education, and practice, as well as careers for engineers and those aspiring to one day become one. I'm your host, Alex Fries. And today I look forward to a really interesting discussion with a very old friend of mine, uh, Giovanni Greco. We've known each other for, I think, about 30 years or something like this. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> it's a long time. Um, Gio has had a, a, a very diverse... If you don't mean very old, you mean long time friend. Yes, yes, exactly. I think that sounds much better. Uh, but in any case, uh, you've, had a, you've had a fascinating career with... with many different stations or a number of different stations where you've dealt with things like cars, boats, now spaceships. Um, maybe for starters, do you want to sort of go back a little bit and give us a little bit of a timeline of your professional activities and, and you know, what you do today and how you arrived at where you are today? Yeah, with pleasure. So, um, yeah, like you know, Alex, we um, uh, got our degrees from Rensselaer Polytechnic in New York. And then after that, um, I ended up for about 10 years in the automotive industry in uh, the Detroit area. I worked for a couple of different companies. So started off at Ford, then went to uh, Chrysler Jeep truck um, for, for a couple of years. And then went back to Ford and then ended up in a subsidiary of Ford that was spun off as a separate company called Vistion. And throughout that entire time frame, I did a number of different things. I started off in body structure and advanced body design and optimization. Lots of initial studies with body stiffness and how to improve body stiffness and decrease costs. And then eventually moved into uh, more advanced structural design where I was doing crash and energy absorption um, mechanisms for vehicles. So trying to find advanced or more uh, innovative ways to absorb energy. I'm just a quick question. I'm assuming these are this is on um, vehicles that were in the pipeline several years down the road, or what? What's the timeline? So, how far ahead are you designing in the automotive industry? Yeah, good question. So, most of the work that I did in automotive was what was considered advanced design, and so I was typically working anywhere from 12 to 18 months before the official program kickoff, when the official budgets and the official timeline for the program is uh, solidified. So most of the automotive product development organizations have a phase where they're kind of doing studies, thinking about, okay, I'm going to do a new model of the F-150 or a new model of the Ford Taurus or a new model of the Ram. And they do a period of time where they say, okay, what does this new model need to have in order to be successful in the marketplace? What kind of features does it need to have? And then what can we do within the maybe constraints of the capacity and uh, skills that we have at the various plants and manufacturing suppliers that we work with. Um, so they investigate and they, they typically investigate a broad range of, uh, of, of features because they want to try and, you know, like anybody else in a competitive marketplace, you want to try and bring as many things to market as you can within the next design cycle. And then at some point, the realities of budgets and time constraints strike and you have to scale back from what you might want to do. But uh, but I was always very fortunate to be in that advanced phase where you can kind of dream of everything and everything that you can put into uh, into the vehicles. So you're you know easily four to five years before that product makes it onto the road. Uh, Sometimes you see these concept cars that look very 
um, you know, spaced out or spacey, spaced out, maybe the wrong word, but very spacey, very avant-garde that look, um, you know, like decades ahead. Is that, that's yet another step in the future, right? That's not what you're Yeah, that's, about. that's actually even a step to be um, ahead of what I was doing. Um, there's another phase that is truly advanced studies um, that are really doing those kinds of concept cars and uh, future uh, future design evolution. But those are, those folks are even another 12 months ahead of where I was. Uh, I did get a chance to work with a couple of studies on the Ram, uh, the Dodge Ram, when I was a Jeep truck. And that was kind of interesting because you get to see what, you know, what the studios and the uh, designers that are not non-technical dream up, you know, what uh, things that might not actually yet be possible in terms of technology, but um, but certainly were, were kind of fantastic to see from an imagination. Standpoint. Oh, that's that's interesting. So there's the driving behind that is is a a product design driver more than an engineering evolution driver than I'm assuming. Yeah. And, um, many of the companies have, uh, have, you know, kind of evolved into a state where they folded in the, what they call industrial design and aesthetics design, um, with more of the phase I was in the advanced engineering because one of the challenges they found is the products got more and more sophisticated is that, designers could conceive of innovations that were not yet technically possible, you know, and so then there was a sort of a, uh, a mismatch between the, the dreams that you instill on marketing organizations and executives that then wouldn't be possible. So, so they tried to balance that out by having more engineers earlier in the, uh, in the in, even into that phase. And that's, that's how I got involved in that RAM program. Oh, that's, I mean, well, I think I'll, I have a few more questions down the road on sort of the design philosophy, but that whole concept of concurrent design of having everybody right at the beginning there interacting, I think that really um, is reflected in that approach. It is reflected. And then, you know, in, in an industry that like the automotive industry, that's fairly mature in terms of product development process, that's become sort of the minimum bar that you have to do um, a lot of concurrent ideation and engineering and feasibility at the plants all at the same time um, because innovation does come so quickly and markets change so quickly that if you can't you know kind of bring your ideas and uh, features to the market quickly then you know you, you kind of lose a chance of becoming or staying relevant um, and so the companies that are fastest at bringing new innovation to the market are the ones that are most successful these days But that requires exactly what you just said, you know, this, this level of collaboration across these many disciplines, not just the technical discipline, but the technical part of manufacturing, the creative part of advanced design and uh, industrial engineering, um, you know, marketing and you know, futuristic thinking about what is, where's the market going? Was uh, sustainability an issue back then? So when you think of concurrent design, I mean, nowadays you very often have um, you know, the, 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 the full life cycle of the product on the, on the drawing board at the very beginning. So you look into uh, the operate, like the, obviously the manufacturing phase, the, 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 the operational phase, but then also the disposal phase and, and recycling. Was that active back then? Or uh, I guess that was just the beginning of when it started, right? Yeah, it was just at the beginning, right? There was some new legislation that happened in Europe and then some, some legislation here in the United States that requires some level of involvement from the OEMs on the end of life of the products. And that really drove more of that, uh, uh, 
even further drove the thinking about how do we recycle these products and how do we take care of them at the end of the life. Uh, at least at Ford, that was when I joined, that was already a very much ingrained thought process. People always were thinking about what are materials do we make things out of, what does those materials do, not just through the product life cycle when they're being used, but at the end of the life, how do we get rid of them? Um, and where do they end up? And you know, how are we kind of really conscious of where these materials end up if they end up in landfills? Um, so that was that was good to see way back then. Um, much more, uh, uh, you know, maybe more than what is com conventionally talked about in the press. The automobile companies are very conscious about products and what the end, end of life cycle is for those products. Okay, so then, and, and uh, we, we kind of got hung up on the cars, but that was just yeah. the first phase, right? What the... Well, that was the fun part. That was the, what I thought my career wanted to be because I've always been passionate about, you know, cars and racing and uh, done a ton of, of racing myself. But then uh, I, I found that I sort of saturated in terms of what I thought I could uh, contribute in the automobile industry. It just didn't seem like it was challenging enough. And so I got a chance to... Um, to work on a vertical takeoff and landing all composite aircraft. Uh, and that was a, a you know, short research um, role with, uh, with a company called DuPont Aerospace, funded partially by NASA and Office of Naval Research. And we did a very neat aircraft called the DP-2. You can find videos online of this um, aircraft, the all composite aircraft that, uh, that we did a demonstration of hover under jet power um, and i was in charge of the airframe the control systems and the uh the testing for the, the prototype that uh that we were building the prototype that you see in any of the videos that you might find online um and then unfortunately that activity was uh was not funded after two years that i was there nasa stopped funding on the uh on the activity office of naval research lost interest um so the company wasn't successful, and so I ended up uh, through some contacts that uh, that I had met a Chrysler a former manager of mine told me about an opportunity in the marine industry, which is you know as you know Alex another area that we've always been interested in just boats and water and whatnot. So so I ended up um, joining a company called Sea Ray uh, in Florida, and Sea Ray is part of a larger conglomerate called Brunswick. But I joined that team as the uh, um, initially as the structural design and naval architecture manager. And then eventually, uh, about a year after I joined, I became director of engineering for all of CRA product development. So that was a fun role. It was a uh, higher pace, which was much more interesting to me, right? We were making anywhere from 10 to 14 new products a year. So that's a lot of product development, a lot of design, a lot of testing. So typically engineering, you mentioned you started off in the automotive industry, running final analysis, doing your, 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 you know, um, hands-on engineering in a way. You're there, you're actually running the analysis, you're drawing the CAD model, you are um, testing the product in the, in, in the universal testing or whatever the, the, the environment is. Um, and then eventually you transition. I mean, this sounds much more like a, like a project management role. Is that so? Or did you get, still get to do some hands-on engineering? Yeah, no, I think that's an important observation of something that you, you know, individuals need to think about and everybody has their style and what fits and what doesn't fit. And 
for me, I, I think over time, what I learned is that what fits for me is some of the smaller um, teams where I get to, you know, maybe have a role like director of engineering and I'm involved with, you know, kind of the strategic planning and thinking about portfolios and thinking about how to grow the team and how to provide the, the right support for the team and make sure that, that our teams are well-trained, that they have the tools they need. You know, I find that part fascinating. But but the other part that's uh, equally interesting is in smaller teams, even at the director level, you might get an opportunity to still run FBA. So so for me at C-Ray, you know, I was teaching folks how to run FBA on vessels because for a long time, the marine industry has been more of a hand calc and, uh, you know, rules of thumb on how to do laminate schedules and how to do uh, structural design and scantling design. And what we, what I brought to the table is the idea of using more advanced um, analysis tools to reduce the mass of the vehicle or at least put the reinforcement and the structure where it really needed to be. Um, and with a finite element approach, you can get to a much more sophisticated analysis for, you know, for some of these high speed uh, um, vessels, especially the larger ones. No, I did. I did a lot of hands-on work at C-Ray um, and as well at, at DuPont. Can you share what software you used? Yeah, so we, uh, at, at C-Ray, we predominantly used a software package from a company called Altair Engineering. Um, and the kind of pre-processor that everybody knows about is something called HyperMesh. And then we used uh, Nastran as the primary solver um, and then Later, also used a product that was Altair's product uh, called OptiStruct, which is a uh, analysis tool, but it's also a, uh, an optimization tool that can be used to conduct mass optimization or um, you know various different studies. So you can maybe uh, constrain stress levels on a structure to a certain level, and then try to come up with a minimum mass design subjected to that that mass or that stress constraint. Hypermesh and OptiStruct is very widely used in the automotive industry, so it's uh, and it's very widely used in lots of different industries. Um, but it's, it's you know it's a really good good product, like many others that that have uh, really good solid analysis foundation um, and have techniques built into the tool for doing this optimization and studies, which is a really important part of engineering, right? I mean, engineering is not just about go analyze a thing that you uh, that you know. <laughs> It's about you know innovation and creation, and, um, and this is where these tools really shine. Is when you're trying to invent and create new new things. As you were in 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 that role, as you were hiring um, engineers right out of college, um, you know one one of the debates that we always have is to what extent should we uh, obviously find out elements and simulation and optimization from a from an analytical standpoint is something that we we all teach um, in one way or another. Um, and there's always been a, and there continues to be an argument to what extent specific software applications should be taught at college. Um, for instance, you know, what, what do you think, um, is there a real value added uh, in, in having a, a fresh engineer, a new engineer walk into um, C-Ray and have been knowledgeable about using that specific package or, or a similar package because the transition is, is, is a lot easier or do you prefer to do the training right there on, um, in, in your environment? Yeah, so this question has always come up a lot for me in my career, and I've, I've, uh, and I've collaborated with a lot of different universities and schools, and my answer is always the same. I, I think what's extraordinarily important is that the foundations be very, very solid. 
account. And so it's less important if uh, a university uses, you know, Hypermesh versus Nastran versus Abacus versus Ansys or any one of the, you know, amazing tools that are existing out there. What's what's crucial though is that, you know, students come away using those tools, not knowing how to click the buttons, but knowing deeply the foundation behind the the, the tool, right? How finite elements uh, are decomposing a structure, how the loads get distributed, node continuity, element uh, shape functions, element formulations that might make a difference. That's that's even more important than the specifics of a which tool did they learn that on. Because um, the, the aspect that is sort of easily doable by a, a, a corporation is to teach you how to use a different tool. What is really difficult for a corporation is to teach that foundation. That's where schools and universities are really uh, you know, key. Yeah, and it's an invaluable. I mean, garbage in, garbage out, right? It's it's CFD, colorful fluid dynamics. You'll see pretty pictures, but uh, they may make no sense whatsoever unless you know the foundations behind and, and, and the limitations of the software. Yeah. yeah, and that's the biggest mistake I see for students that maybe don't come out of, uh, you know, don't come out of university with that foundation extraordinarily solid is that they, you know, you, you can unfortunately many times pose a ill-conditioned problem and still get a result. Um, if you don't know to look at that result critically and say that doesn't make sense, um, you know you run the risk of moving forward with something that that really shouldn't move forward. So the foundation is extraordinarily important, more so than the specific tool. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what happened after C-Ray? You did C-Ray for what? Uh, quite a while, right? I think that was. Yeah, I did C-Ray for for about five years, um, and then. Uh, you know, as we all know, the market really turned down about 2010 or so, and um, the industry went through a very big adjustment in, uh, you know, how much product development was happening, the size of our team, uh, and so I ended up, uh, again, kind of a, my adventurous style brought me to a, a company that was a, a small startup in Detroit again that was trying to do high-speed amphibians, so a company called Gibbs uh, Amphibians. And they're, um, they're still around. They do a lot of research. They've been doing a lot of research in high-speed amphibious vessels, so vessels that you know have a really efficient and effective hull, um, and then they have wheels and tires, but those wheels and tires, almost like a retractable landing gear on an aircraft, they come up and they tuck away in the, in the hull. So that way the hull is, uh, you know, can be a conventional hull and going fast on water and doesn't have to drag wheels, right? Some of the products like the duck boats that everybody hears about or knows about maybe in the Boston area, those, those vessels drag the, the drive line and the carriage and the wheels through the water. So they're, they're very slow moving in the water, right? They can only maybe get to six or seven knots. Uh, whereas the vessels we were making at Gibbs were vessels that tuck their uh, wheels and could go 35 to 40, 40 knots on water. So so that was that was an interesting product. Um, you know, the the principal, the owner of the company decided to move the company to, to England. So we shut down all the operations in Detroit, which was annoying because uh, it was a very successful product. I built a great prototype uh, in about 18 months. 
Um, but then from a kind of got in touch with a friend of mine that had worked with me at DuPont Aerospace, a guidance control navigation engineer that had worked with me to do all the uh, uh, all the aircraft uh, software for guidance for the hovering of, uh, of the DuPont aircraft. And he ended up at a small company called, uh, at least back then, it was a small company called Ward. And he said, hey, you ever thought about going back into aerospace and maybe the space side? And the space side has always been sort of a fascination for me um, from way back in RPI. You know, you maybe remember uh, Lake Maravo was, was my advisor at the, uh, at RPI, and we were all into, you know, uh, launch vehicles and even laser propulsion and um, all sorts of interesting ways of trying to make futuristic uh, launch vehicles. Um, but I never got an opportunity to work on it because, you know, just different circumstances never gave me a chance in my early part of the career. So here's a chance to get into the aerospace. And so I joined, uh, I joined Blue in about um, the end of, uh, well, 2010, around 2010. So been here about 10 years. What What is your current role? At, or how, I guess, how did you, what role did you start off in, in uh, Blue? And, and what what's what are you currently doing? Yeah, so as a small company, I started off in a role that in maybe other companies would have called, would have called like the structural engineering director. But we, we were small enough, we didn't really have titles. So we just said, <laughs> I was the group lead for structures. Um, and so I, I was responsible for structural design, structural analysis, and overall um, vehicle configuration. So my team uh, worked, worked to do primary structure, but then they also worked with all the other disciplines, you know, avionics, fluid systems, cryo systems, propellants. And this and, is on New Shepard, right? I think that's the first one uh, that was designed. And this is for the suborbital platform, the New Shepard platform, yeah. So that's that's um, that's how I started there, and then I, uh, as the company continued to grow, I transitioned to chief engineer for the New Shepard platform, and then senior technical director for the New Shepard business unit. So now, in that role, my role is not just the design phase, but also the manufacturing and the operations phase. You know where we where we actually operate the vehicles and in, uh, in our launch site in Texas. The suborbital flights are aimed. I mean, you can't deploy satellites with that, so they're mostly aimed for space tourism. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So the market that, uh, well, there's two markets that the New Shepard platform addresses. One is the, um, you know, future space tourism and uh, uh, maybe imagination of how we can use this uh, to motivate folks to think about, you know, our, our planet and future in space differently, right? So it's then it's a platform for us to gain tons and tons of experience and practice at operating these kinds of uh, cryogenic vehicles. Um, and then also it's a platform that we can do uh, un unattended payloads. So payloads that have, um, you know, a small experiment that can run in uh, when, the, when the spacecraft reaches uh, microgravity. So there are many things that we do in the New Shepard um, platform that have taught us how to do things from many, you know, anywhere from composite structures, build and fabricate and operate, um, and then gave us kind of the, you know, the foundation so that you can make things that are bigger and more capable for for future launch vehicles like the Big One uh, architecture, and then uh, that's given us some experience on material systems and things that we might want to take onto, you know, even longer missions in space, right? So. Um, 
the moon or the lunar lander platforms would be things that stay in space even longer than a, than a orbital booster that, that brings a spacecraft to, uh, to low Earth orbit or geosynchronous orbit. Wasn't the website a little while ago just looking around and uh, there was a size comparison of the new Glenn? That's like almost Saturn V uh, dimensions. The thing is is much bigger than, you know, the competitors, the the, the Falcon 9 and the, the Falcon Heavy. And, and that's like an order of magnitude bigger. Is that is that the intention is to go, is, is, is really to prepare that moon, the Artemis missions and, and compete in that scenario? Yeah, New Glenn has always been a vehicle that we wanted to to make that had extraordinary capability, right? So and that's how it's been designed to have um, market-leading uh, capability in terms of payload to orbit. And... Hmm, interesting. It seems to be a fairly competitive market. And I mean, even starting with space tourism, uh, there, there was a big, and, and this is from a, from a very much outside perspective, but there was... Uh, spaceship One, you know, Rutan, and and uh, and 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 uh, developing into uh, Virgin Galactic with the the spaceport down in I believe in Arizona. They they have a spaceport that's kind of was built with the intention of sort of offering you know regular suborbital flights for uh, paying guests. Um, and and that I mean that's been going on for probably a decade at this point. I think uh, Spaceship won, won the XPRIZE uh, about 10 years, 10, 12 years ago. And then right. Spaceship 2, and then there was the, the uh, I'm, I'm talking about the high visibility ones that sort of pop up in the media, and Spaceship 2, we had that accident. Um, then, and, and it seemed to have, at least it felt like it had fizzled out a little bit, the, the enthusiasm for space uh, tourism is is it still there? Do you see uh, how much is a seat on on New Shepard? I don't know if if, if a price has been published. <laughs> no, we haven't published any prices. We haven't talked about prices yet because we're not ready for that yet. We you know we, we're still developing the platform and doing all our final testing and getting to getting to a first human flight is an important uh, step for us. And we want to make sure that we do it you know methodically, deliberately, as as fast as we can, but. But we have to have a safe, reliable platform before before we start really pursuing customers. Um, other platforms have taken different strategies. You know, they pursued customers earlier in the design phase um, and showed that there's real demand out there for for at least these um, these uh, space tourism or uh, I call them adventurous. Uh, uh, experiences that that people are interested in that so there's a market out there um for for space adventure or just adventure in general people want unique experiences and uh and this these platforms definitely provide that but um to your point you know virgin galactic and and Rutan before that when he was doing you know as part of the, that that whole um, uh, initiative it's it's been going on quite some time right so it just shows you how difficult this market is and how difficult this these products are that bringing them to the level of safety and the level of reliability that we want is um, really takes a lot of time and a lot of testing we do have a tremendous interest in aerospace from the mechanical engineering students and um, um, you know one, one question that I get a lot is is, is it you know it, what are the jobs perspectives? What are the growth perspectives in the aerospace world? Um, very much also on the space side. Um, you know, the aeronautical side is, is, is certainly dominated by Boeing, Airbus, and 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 some of the, the the military manufacturers. But what's what's the deal on the space side? Where do you see this industry going? And is it a good industry for a, uh, a an engineering graduate to get into at this point? Well, I, you know, my sense of things is that 
uh, there's kind of a renewed interest in uh, in space, especially now that the U.S. can launch uh, astronauts to to Earth orbit again from U.S. soil, right? That we that's been for a long time not something we we were able to do, and so. With that, and with NASA's renewed interest, and maybe even interest at the uh, the administration level for uh, in the U.S. for getting to space, getting to the moon, and getting beyond the moon to um, to maybe other other planets or conducting missions in deeper space, um, manned missions to deeper space. I, I think there's there's a huge interest in really finally pushing further into uh, into that that area and so I think there are there is room for continued growth over the next several decades it's what I find fascinating it is the is the big paradigm shift almost because up until about 15 years ago all the space activities were government funded you had everything running through NASA and now we have all these companies that started um, it's kind of like the Apple Microsoft story right so you start very small small teams you mentioned when you joined uh, Blue Origin yeah. you know, it was 100 engineers and now 3500 so there's there's significant growth and there are multiple players in the field which I find super interesting and um, yeah. and with very very high set goals working well with the government agencies so I think I think that really um, that yeah. and I think what we've seen in other industries which which I'm a firm believer will happen in the space industry as well as with with interest from many different competitive uh, commercial uh, organizations that competitive nature will create uh, more innovation will create new products will create new markets um, you know, I'm a firm believer that that's you know mankind is sort of huh, uh, at their at their heart innovators and explorers and this is a this is just another area where we can become explorers and innovators. Um, and so I, I firmly believe there's going to be great innovation in the coming decades um, in the overall uh, approach to getting to space, staying in space, uh, living and working in space, you know, things that, that we have good foundation for and we're just going to take it to the next level. With this, we close the first part of my discussion with Giovanni. If you want to hear his insights about innovation and design, join us next time on Engineering Voices for the second part of the conversation. As always, you can find more information on the show notes of this podcast. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a recommendation or comment. Thank you for listening in. This is Alex Fried signing off until next time on Engineering Voices.